And then, oh, like I'm going to build a house in the metaverse and that's going to cost me like those mansions that are being built for like for two million. Like I'm not getting it. Like I feel like it's another way of flashing things and it's going to be reserved mostly for the rich and famous. This week on Today at Ember Live, episode 22, myself and Jason discuss a wide variety of topics. We get into how cryptocurrency is spreading everywhere, including real estate, especially here in the United States. We also get into a quick discussion about the adoption of cryptocurrency in developing nations and what that means for cryptocurrency projects as a whole. And even though it's been spoken about ad nauseum for those that are living under a rock, Twitter was purchased by Elon Musk. Jason and I give our takes on that. And we discuss future plans for Ember. We also take some questions from the community. Enjoy the show. Today at Ember, it's hosts Rob Velossi and Jason Dominique and their guests are not financial advisors unless otherwise disclaimed. The content on Today at Ember is for educational and entertainment purposes only and merely cite their own personal opinions. Know that all investments involve some form of risk. Please work with an investment professional. And now onto the show. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome to episode, and I can't believe it, it's episode 22 of today at Ember. We have a fantastic show for you. It's been an exciting week for Ember this week. I have a variety of discussions to get into. My name is Rob Velazzi. I am your co-host along with our co-CEO and my co-host, Jason Dominique. Jason, how are you doing today, buddy? Hey, Rob. Good to be here as always. Feels like it's been forever that we had, you know, this this discussion, just you and I, because with the guests, it's uh it's a bit different. We don't get the the same uh dynamics, you know, just you and I. So uh looking forward to this chat. Yeah, absolutely. Last week, unfortunately, we had to have a little bit of delay. I wasn't feeling well, but now I'm back in the saddle and I cannot be happier to be back here in this uh, in this seat talking to you, Jason. We have a great show for you guys today. We're going to go over a wide variety of stuff. We're going to go ahead and give you guys a little bit of a project update later. We're going to be taking some frequently uh, asked questions from or live questions from our community. We're we'll doing that in a bit. But first, we are going to have a broader discussion at some topics that have been really driving me and Jason and our thought process, having some thought experiments behind the scenes, some things that are going on in the crypto world. And one of the big things, Jason, I'd like to know your thoughts on this, is apparently cryptocurrency is going to be in the blockchain in everything, including some of the most quote-unquote stable investments that you could possibly have, and that's real estate. Jason, I want to know what your top-end thoughts are. We'll get a little bit deeper into the particulars. We'll start off with some of the ones that are I think are a good move and some of the more speculative stuff a bit later, but I want to know your pie in the sky thoughts. Well, I mean, I've actually mentioned this a few times in the past about how I think, you know, um, the deeds to your property could potentially end up being, you know, some sort of NFT and things like that. I don't know if that's where you wanted to head into. I know that recently in the news, they've been talking about accepting crypto for, you know, paying lease and things like that. And, Ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, it's I don't see why it shouldn't be a a form of acceptable payment. It's worth something. You know, there's liquidity behind it. And uh, any uh, landlord or someone that would want to accept it, you know, and is completely uh, his own right to to decide to accept that type of uh, of tender, I would say. Yeah, I would agree. I think I think on that end of the spectrum, when it comes to real estate, 
being here in Miami, you know, it's basically our only economic growth is totally based around real estate development, uh, especially a speculative real estate market. When I was at the conference, Bitcoin 2022, there was quite a few, you know, big developments that were trying to reach an audience that are in the crypto audience. I'm not sure if they're accepting payments or not, but I do think something like Jamestown Partners, you know, using something like BitMart to accept payment, that I think is something that's right up also, you know, up our alley what we're looking at when it comes to utility, when it comes to payment, when it comes to processing. I think there's something actually there. Yeah. I think that's something that should be, you know, just like you're able to buy a glass of milk or use anything else, I think that's that shouldn't be a problem moving forward. Yeah, and I think it builds sort of a connection or a bridge. And this is where I feel there's a correlation between, you know, a few years back when you started seeing this emergence of Venmo and things like that. So it's it's really about, you know, at the end of the day, how can you move money to one party to another uh, without necessarily going through intermediaries in, in the middle. And I think that the block, yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, Venmo is not so much the exact sort of same use case, but it's the same purpose, you know, the, the moving of asset, you know, money from one person to another. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Venmo, you need to have it connected either with a credit card or your bank account and things like that. But if you look at uh, a similar approach with uh, blockchain in the DeFi space, this could, you know, definitely get a lot of traction uh, if someone, I don't know who, but if someone could release, you know, some form of peer-to-peer crypto-to-crypto sort of way of transferring funds and digital assets. And the thing is, most of the time with these type of systems, hopefully, I mean, right now they want it, you know, they want it to be regulated, but in the unregulated space for DeFi, I think regarding the peer-to-peer, this has an incredible amount of growth potential, especially in emerging markets. You know, you look at places where banking infrastructure is not as present or even, you know, where people just, you know, are, are, are maybe a bit more forward looking in terms of adopting new technologies. I totally agree. I, I think that you bring up the idea of emerging markets. We, when we spoke a couple of weeks back, when we were talking with Jamal from from Wire, where there was a big focus on the idea that there is not this, you know, banking infrastructure. Most people, you know, a large portion of them don't even have a bank account. But I wonder though if this is, and we'll talk about this a little bit more ad nauseum once we get into the idea of some of the more speculative parts of this this real estate endeavor. That you know, one of the biggest announcements was Jamestown Partners partnering with BitPay to be able to take payments. And they have a wide variety of ones. Even Dogecoin, they're, they're apparently taking as well. But um, Jamestown Partners is based out of the United States only. And I'm wondering if this is a lot of corporate America just jumping on whatever the next big thing is to signal like, hey, we're part of the cool kids. Because really with stuff like Venmo, you know, even with Coinbase, now Coinbase is a credit card. I mean, with a, tr- with a minor transaction fee, there's multiple... There was Bitcoin Cash at some point, or uh, yeah, yeah, Bitcoin Cash also. So these were other ways they could just do that to convert it to money to be able to pay their tenant. I mean, to pay their landlord, their tenant to be able to pay on their landlord. I'm wondering though, what's your thoughts? I mean, this is, I mean, there's BitMart being involved. Is this just everyone just either saying, "Hey, we want to signal that we're all for cryptocurrency and regulators should take notice," or is this more of like, "Hey, we're part of the cool kids. Come over here, and you know, we have your free Wi-Fi and your and your and your skateboard to come with it." <laughs> <laughs> well. Yeah, I think like the true answer to this is like any business, when you decide to go in a direction, 
you need to have sort of strategies and tactics and metrics to follow through. And some of these tactics, in my opinion, you know, with Jamestown could possibly be just to be in the media. I mean, ultimately, the way I see it is it's not going to be decentralized, so it's going to be centralized. You'll probably need, like you mentioning, you know, a BitPay account. So that means, you know, user adoption for BitPay. And fundamentally, at the end of the day, it's it's more fees, you know, transaction fees and things like that. And bottom line, you know, will that actually convert in new like people that use BitPay? And then ultimately, will that end up, you know, being people, are they going to be on wrapping, you know, fiat to uh, crypto? And then from there, you know, convert whichever native currency that they have into the accepted means of payment. So it's still a lot of friction, in my opinion, compared to what you already have that is set up either through EFT or something like that. But it's, um, you know, it's it's well-intended. I think at the end of the day, it's well-intended and the market is going in that direction. But like you're saying, Rob, I think it's a way of positioning yourself and it's some sort of trait, you know, just like back in the day, you know, when places used to have Wi-Fi versus, you know, connected computers on Ethernet, you know, come over here, you know, we have Wi-Fi or, uh, you know, startups that have free food and candy, you know, at the end of the day, how many people truly, you know, eat that candy? You know, it's like, it sounds great, but what's the actual adoption and usage and conversion out of that benefit? As opposed to it being like a publicity stunt, you know? Yeah, possibly. I mean, it could be anything, but uh, you know, you're asking for my opinion and, and my take on it. No, oh, absolutely. I think it's a good, anything that shows widespread adoption, that shows a use case, I think it goes, and I've used this term before, rising tide raises all ships. I think it's beneficial for the industry as a whole, because especially when a lot of the market, especially the traditional finance, a lot of them look at it like, well, what do you do with it once you have it? Like once you own it, besides of making, you know, as an investment or whatever, what is the real use behind it? And, you know, I mean, for those that are, you know, economists out there, what can make the same argument with gold, you know, I'm not going to take a bar of gold and be able to walk into, you know, no. the Publix and start sh- shaving it off to be able to buy a sandwich, you know, <laughs> unless there's some, you know, some libertarian dream, I guess. I think that, you know, it can make that same case. And I think it's entirely speculative, but the idea that there was a real use case, I think it's, I think it's great for everybody. Now, moving on to the next part of it, though, is that, you know, I'm going to kind of go down the line here because that's what I see is real utility. Someone who's 40 years old, who's been in the real estate market, who's lived through the Great Recession, as they used to call it, and see markets go up and down, that real estate is supposed to be this non-volatile, there's the idea of this, you know, a very substantial piece of collateral. That's the idea is real property. That's what real estate is real. That's what they call it real property, because everything else is entirely speculative, because it's really air. That there, crypto, I don't know if it's what you're, I want to know if, if you think this as well. Is it a victim of its own success? In the sense that because it's so successful and has so many use cases when it comes to blockchain, NFT, I mean, you know, people here, I see them talking about something like when it comes to loans, as you were talking about too, with proof of stake, NFTs, to be able to, to, to remove that idea of paperwork when it comes to the loan and finance world, I think there's a lot of utility there as well. Where it starts to get, I think, a little bit dodgy, though, is like the one of the largest real estate developers here in Dubai 
uh, Demac Properties, they're adding Bitcoin Ethereum as a method of payment to be able to purchase these pre-construction real estate properties that are enormous. But they kind of slide in also, too, is that we're also going to be putting in $100 million into the metaverse to sell real estate there as well. Oh, and I'm wondering that's if, the Pandora's box. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if I, you know, um, so, I mean, this is the largest, this, this is no, they had a billion dollar profit last year. They're, you know, they're all over the Arab states and also too in the UK. And them trying to blend these two things together, we're starting to enter speculative, you know, tulip markets from the Swiss back in the day now. We're starting to talk about metaverse and tying these two things together. Yeah. Well, I mean, <sighs> This is a huge topic and it's definitely gained a lot of attention and traction, you know, both in the media and people investing in it. You know, if you look at beyond the example that you're, you're, you're bringing forward, if you look at ApeCoin where they have, uh, I think it's called the Apeverse or something like that. You know, I understand the motivations behind it, you know, of, of buying land in the metaverse and things like that and potentially, you know, building your house there and hiring people. And, you know, it's like, it is a a bit mind bending to think that this could possibly be a reality in a dystopian future. But I think something that I uh, read recently on this, and I think it was really interesting is why do all these sort of future portraying movies or series or even books when they talk about VR and the reason why people sort of go in those and let's say hypothetically would have bought a land and you know bought a house to basically hang on their walls yeah hang on their walls like uh NFTs and things like that like why does it always have to be in a situation where it's a world where it's all it's the end of the world just yeah. jumping in and this yeah, like, yeah exactly no why one wants to go outside because the environment's ruined yeah exactly like why can it just be like like i think this is where the issue lies is that one of the big reason why it gives value and worth to the reasoning behind the metaverse is that a lot of what people see as to why I would want to go in there, it's because my reality is not as good as what it could be in the metaverse. But ultimately, the metaverse will not be free. And if you look at how much it's costing right now, it almost feels like the metaverse, or at least the life that you could build yourself in the metaverse could actually be more expensive than... Exorbitantly more expensive. Yeah, so I'm, <laughs> I'm not understanding sort of the reasoning. Like if it'd be cheap, like if I could have like a mansion and all those sorts of things like for like 25 bucks, then like with a theme <laughs> plate on Team Forest or on Envato, then yeah, it makes sense. But that's not the case. You know, if you want to buy land now, it's like 60 grand. Well, I mean... You could buy beachfront property in Ecuador for $60,000. Know? Like why aren't you... <laughs> buying a real land like for 60 yeah. grand and then oh like i'm gonna build a house in the metaverse and that's gonna cost me like those mansions that are being built for like for two million like i'm not getting it like i feel like it's another way of flashing things and it's gonna be reserved mostly for the rich and famous and you know the average person that is actually if you look at the reasoning behind metaverse like this idea that you could have a better life there, then you're indirectly saying that the people that will be in there 
or your average class or even below people that have potentially that they're not happy with what they have or how they live or Mm -hmm. their own reality. And based on this, well, where are they going to get the funds to actually build a better life in the metaverse? Unless they're going to be hobos in the metaverse, like <laughs> streetwalkers in the metaverse. <laughs> like, what's what's like? How is that better? What's the draw? What's the draw? Exactly. <laughs> anyway, I think right now there's. I still think this is something for the the people that have money, and if you have money, you're not going to find more happiness there than you know in in your real life. You know, happiness. I'm going to be cliche, you know, but happiness starts from within. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I know, I'm a big agreeer of that, but I, I think the tail sign of that is exactly who's doing this. Damak in you know Dubai, this is some of the most expensive, prestigious, premium real estate you know in the world. You know, it's a very small group of people. I mean, who goes to Dubai and UAE? These are you know very rich people from the Middle East. Kids are driving, you know, 19 Ferraris. They have, you know, their own YouTube channel with 10 million followers, even though they don't need the money. It's that kind of crowd that they're shooting towards. And I think maybe that's also, you know, me saying that where you have, you know, these 22-year-olds, 23-year-olds, maybe that's their audience. You know, rich kids with so much money, they really don't know, know what to do with it. And I like to see the idea, though, that you can still buy general real estate, the idea of use cases. Where we start to get into a little bit of a, a gray area when it comes to speculative markets, and I think... That, you know, real estate, like I said, I've made my bread and butter there in the past. I still do that today, even though I'm entirely focused on Ember, you know, I still run my real estate business. And one of the things that I'm seeing here, and this is an article, it's like, it's for a new class of landlord. And because there is such a boom in real estate right now, now, is it a speculative bubble? Is this like the big short all over again? That's a discussion for another day. I personally think that, you know, real estate can't possibly sustain being this, you know, so expensive, but maybe it can because of things like this. So really what it is, it's the startups as a way for people because they're so expensive to be able to buy a starter home or be able to invest in real estate. They've come up with this thing now through the blockchain that people were able to buy stakes in a rental home for as little as $50. So let's say you and I don't know, I guess, I don't know how many people. So it's fractionalized ownership. Fractionalized ownership. Of real estate. Of real estate. Now, the rental properties, though, so they can produce income. Now, if it's $50, imagine the amount of people it must take to buy some of these homes. Ever heard of the old saying, um, a camel is a horse designed by committee? <laughs> you ever heard no, that before? No, but I, I, can see, <laughs> I can see how you know it's sort of a, a thing in disguise, pretty much. Yeah, and also, too, the idea that you know when you have so many people putting their you know, fingers into something to what your design aspects are, when you're trying to build a horse, you end up with a camel, you know, like sort of like that Simpsons yeah. episode with the Homer car that has every single feature. It just looks ridiculous. <laughs> and so the issue with this, though, is that in these properties. So let's say that there's a, there's an, um, an antidote here about the there was a replacement fan that needed to be happened. There was only thirty five dollars. But because this house was owned by, I guess, thousands of people. And they all had to vote on any expenditures oh that happened God. to happen. What a massive headache. So to be able to replace a $35 fan, this is actually not even just a, a, a hyperbole. It literally takes an act of Congress to be able to approve a $35 fan. And this is on an asset that is supposed to be a non-volatile asset. I don't know if this is still propping up the market. Is Can we see a, a huge exodus out of this because of this? I don't know what your thoughts are on this uh, well, my, my thought is that I'm not interested. <laughs> but I think, yeah, I think it's the beginning of something. And if you look at fractionalized ownership on the blockchain through smart contracts and things like that, 
I think maybe what it needs is potentially to slap on, you know, some form of uh, DAO mechanism so that, you know, things under a certain threshold uh, doesn't need to be voted, you know, on. And, you know, there's um, what you call like a a person that is um, nominated to basically execute things that are below the certain threshold. So if it's like, you know, below 500, then, you know, it gets decided automatically by this person. It doesn't need to be voted on, but anything beyond that, then it's taken to, you know, the yearns and, and, and to like basically to be voted on. But I think, I think the concept is good, but then you need to bring in management principles around, you know, what it is. I mean, it's, I, I would assume it's the same if you look at a property managed by a co-op where every single tenant, you know, has a voice and, and something to say if the roof needs to be redone or anything like that, then like people come in and they have to decide. But if it's like we need to change the light bulb in front, I don't think that people come in, you know, and decide, well, which light bulb is it going to be? You know, it's I think it comes down to uh, management principles. Yeah. Well, I think uh, I think this goes back again to the idea that maybe the crypto is a victim of his own success because I mean this is just this is the most corporate speak I've ever seen. I love this tagline: "You can't afford to buy a home yourself, but maybe you can become one fiftieth of a landlord." Sounds exciting. <laughs> That's an well, the way you quote. put it, you know, I mean, if I'd I'd be looking at. Uh, feedback on what it is and i'd be seeing oh last time we had to argue you know it's a change of fan i'd be like oh man, i'm not getting into that well also too I, uh, the big issue too is that i don't think the tenants are aware of what the situation is once they mm, move that's in. interesting though um yeah you know of them, of them coming in and being like i have a landlord and then they're like oh yeah, there's 50 of them <laughs> yeah what's the actual like transparency behind that model you know that's that's an interesting thing yeah the sort of governing body I mean, it's owned on the blockchain, but there's, you know, you need to build a bridge, you know, between the blockchain and, you know, legal entities. So ultimately, like, how are they going to make that happen? To navigate that. Yeah, the legal entity actually owns, like, the property, but who owns the legal entity? So um, it's like shares of that. So it, you know, it, it becomes messy. You know, I can see a lot of areas where beyond just like the day-to-day management, the way it's organized in the background could be complex. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure as we say here in Miami too, I'm sure they're doing a lot of legal ninjutsu to be able to, <laughs> to make a lot of this stuff happen. They're black belt but, uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think the big takeaway though is, is really about the idea that we're seeing mass adoption in areas that are generally adhere to traditional finance. And we're starting to see the larger and broader adoption of cryptocurrency in spaces like this, which again, as I say, you know, regardless of maybe some of these are hits, some of them might be misses, you know, I mean, they are speculative, but I think the idea of the mass adoption helps, helps all projects and especially ours as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, talk about it in good, talk about it in bad, but just, just talk about it. Yeah, exactly. There's no such thing as bad publicity. Speaking of adoption, on to our next subject. I guess this is something that's also positive, is the mass adoption as its legal tender, their actual currency for the entire country in developing countries is expanding pretty fast. Earlier this year, or I think it was last year maybe, El Salvador announced that they were going to use Bitcoin as, as, as their currency. 
And now recently we have another country here to add to the list, which is the uh, Central African Republic, which is probably one of the poorest nations out there um, in the world. And them adopting cryptocurrency, Bitcoin in particular, as being their national currency. And we're also seeing even countries like, like Cuba that are now opening access for people to use the blockchain, be able to spend with cryptocurrency as well. And we're seeing adoptions like this. I want to know what your thoughts are on that, Jason. Well, I mean, I did look into it a little. Um, I mean, I'm following the news and, you know, from the experience of El Salvador, lots of things sort of came up when trying to actually, you know, legalization and adoption is, you know, is two different things. And they had a myriad of problems while they were oh, doing it in yeah. El Salvador, didn't they? I mean, the whole like, well, first of all, they had to launch a national wallet, you know, for holding the currency because, you know, when you make it legal tender, then you need to make sure, you know, it's accessible to everyone. To everyone. And so that's on one fold. But then again, how do you also enable merchants to receive that? You know, at the end of the day, now it becomes like this whole other beast of, well, you know, if my normal currency is Bitcoin or whatever, and I get into a shop and I want to buy a pint of milk and I don't have any like physical coins or anything like that or paper tender, like how does the actual merchant or corner store will accept it, you know, without a fault? And that's important, you know, without a fault, without downtime, without, you know, uh, too much excess fees. And we need to remember that the blockchain is not something, especially on layer one, it's not something that is instantaneous. You know, it doesn't, you know, happen straight up, you know, when you tap your cart, you know, it, it, it happens immediately. But um, so and, and then there's also like potential ATMs and things like that. So it it became a real headache when it was all about execution and adoption. It's definitely an amazing sort of precedent and first use case. But this is why we feel that, you know, these infrastructure, these layer ones, they're amazing. But now we need to figure out the application side of things, which is layer twos and and everything that has to do with higher throughput, fast, you know, roll-ups and all of these things, they're going to be figured out potentially this year and next year. And at which point then we'll have the speed, we'll have the application, uh, whether it's a service or a product. And I think we will also have different types of currencies that will be tenders, you know, in the sense that will be available to be used and ultimately will they need to be official or not i think it goes back to an old principle that was really interesting is that you know when the first people started exploring the world they explored and they had things that had values to them and they were exchanging with people that they were uh, yeah they didn't have the same economy so yeah, I think there's a story about that we bought we bought like all of manhattan island from indians for like 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 beads or something <laughs> whatever the, the what it was but i think ultimately currency everybody knows that you know it's worth whatever everyone says or, value is yeah yeah exactly so at the end of the day i see a world where it's not a 
going to be about legalization, you know, of a certain tender or a certain currency in a state. It's really going to be about a decentralized market and decentralized sort of currencies and whatever the worth is of that currency and that other currency, the two can meet at an exchange rate with seamless process without any intermediary. And I think, you know, we have thoughts on this subject and we have a vision on, you know, on, on this, on this use case, you know, with the underlying technology of checkout, but that's a subject for later, but yeah, that's, that's my two cents. Excellent. Yeah. And I, I have to say that I think another big aspect of this and not to get too into geopolitical politics or, you know, economy myself being, being American myself, but that the powers that be, the Western powers that control, you know, all of the banking and traditional finance, that a lot of people can make this, you know, can make the case that, you know, countries in the developing nations, a lot of times are victims of, you know, these larger banking and financial institutions that are um, really taking advantage of a lot of these countries for the last, you know, several decades. Well, it's centralizing control. Yes, Absolutely. You know, and it's the same thing in the States. It doesn't need to be like, you know, an emerging country or somewhere in in Southeast Asia. I mean, if your currency does not have a fixed supply, then you can go both ways. If you increase the supply, then you reduce the value of the actual currency. And I think that right now what's happening is that I think most financial bodies are starting to realize that they've messed up the actual let's say hypothetically the USD for, for the case in point, they've messed it up so much in terms of the amount of debt, the amount of new printing of money that there's no real way out of it. And I think, you know, there's this big, not conspiracy thing, but if you look online, you'll be able to find this consortium of different government bodies that want to agree on a centralized digital currency that basically will be able to change what you can do with it. Meaning that, let's say hypothetically, if they change the USD with a digital currency that is centralized and sort of owned by the government, they could potentially say, well, this month you can't spend your money on burgers. You can only buy. And then once you you go and, and try to use your, your digital currency, it will not work to buy certain things because they just have total control over the actual currency. But anyway, that's... That's a rabbit hole for another day. Yeah, most (laughs) definitely, but... Still down the line, though. Um, But I think also, too, is that when it comes to... I think it was so surprising reading the idea when you're talking about centralization and control. A big, I guess, analysis of when China, you know, every couple months last last year, for some reason, everyone was shocked when it happened saying they were going to ban cryptocurrency and everyone's hair was on fire, even though they announced the same thing three months ago. Uh, I guess memories are short. <laughs> or many years ago as well. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I think the analysis, though, from some people were like, well, why are they doing this? And because the Chinese Communist Party is all about control and centralized control. And that's why they don't like the idea of a decentralized currency. So I was shocked when I saw that something like Cuba, which is one of the few remaining countries on Earth that still follows that same communistic kind of ideology that China does. And for them kind of opening up to cryptocurrency, is really surprising to me, and it shows a level of adoption. Now, now people, those same analysis are saying it's all about control when it comes to China. Now, when it comes to Cuba, of course, it's all about avoiding tariffs and avoiding you know, sanctions, and it's all about how cryptocurrency can be nefarious. 
I love how the media decides to change the narrative on a dime, depending on what country meets that narrative or not. Yeah. Well, there's, there's also like generational shifts as well. You know, when you think about Cuba, you know, the Castro's, it's, you know, it's not the same era. And you also have People in Miami, though, are still still pretty hot about it <laughs> here in Miami. They're still they still can't let it go. <laughs> yeah, possibly, possibly. I mean, I've, I've been to Cuba and, you know, the young generation is is not necessarily in the same frame of mind as the previous, uh, whether it was their parents or grandparents uh, ideologies. And, you know, they do have access to the rest of the world, even though their Internet is piss poor uh and pretty much you can't use it almost nowhere but they're fully aware of what's happening in the world and ultimately um i see this as not necessarily a nefarious sort of strategy i see this as potentially you know the new generations trying to be more on cue with what's happening around and i and as they should too i mean i think a big problem we have here in the united states is that the majority of the people in Congress and Senate are pretty much geriatric in their 70s, 80s, and almost you know past their 80 years old period. And I think it's about time to hand the mantle over. Speaking of handing the mantle over, I know that you and I really didn't want to talk too much about this subject because everyone has spoken about this subject ad nauseum um, <laughs> at this point. I'm not sure if we have any hot takes here that someone else hasn't already offered, depending on what our podcast or media outlet but um, for those that have been living under a rock, uh, <laughs> a big rock, <laughs> a big rock, uh, Elon Musk purchased Twitter. He said he was going to do it. He did it. You know, whether you think of Elon or not and what his motivation is to do so, he says free speech. I'm sure that, like I said, everyone's had a hot take on this and what that means for free speech, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we want to keep things that are close to Ember and what it means for us in our industry. And Jason, you mentioned this earlier. When we were talking about this off air is that he was talking about, there's a lot of discussion in the media too as well, is that when it comes to, are we going to get rid of bots? What's going on with the world when it comes to bots? Is that considered free speech when a bot does it? And number two, a lot of people, when they talk about a lot of these meme tokens or, or poo coins, a, a big way they're able to reach a broad audience is through Twitter. They're able to communicate with one another. A lot of these things, you know, a lot of, some of them have utility, some of them don't. Some of them are just, you know, pump and dumps and they know it. And, you know, they're pushing it very hard on Twitter. And there's a lot of outcry to people saying is that that isn't free speech, that, that that's basically, even though there's no regulatory body that's supposed to be taking in charge of this, that somehow Elon should come in and, and save the day. I know there's a big talk because he's supposed to, a lot of people in cryptocurrency are very happy because they know that Elon's pro crypto and Twitter has you know signaled that they wanted to be able to adopt crypto payments or some kind of crypto ecosystem involved in, into their business model. But I want to know what you think about that, Jason. I know that we want to spend too much time on it because everyone, their brothers already said their opinion by now, but I'm sure. Yeah. And you're right. You know, I think the outlook of this acquisition and, you know, making the company private is actually positive. Now, a lot of people will have their own opinion on why it won't be or why it will be. And we're, we're not going to dive into that. But I think that for us in our space, you know, Twitter is is a great platform to and, and it's the same for anything that is, you know, uh, current events, you know, anything that's happening now. That's why Twitter is so interesting. And when it comes to uh, getting the pulse on the market, whether it's stocks or crypto, you know, Twitter is a great source of information to know what people are talking about. 
But unfortunately, you know, when you have a business model, especially, you know, one that is revolving around advertising. (laughs) Well, yes, but I was trying to refer more into sort of the growth or the monthly active users and all those sorts of metrics to track uh, growth or potential just like usage. It's not necessarily in your own interest to kill one third of your total monthly active users because they're all bots. You know, how would that look like on your uh, earnings call. Yeah, something like that. But the thing is, though, is that by taking it private, that he's no longer held to the whims. And he's, you've talked about this in the past, where the idea that the business model, and that's why Jack Dorsey famously left, because he says, you know, I love the product and I just hated this whole thing about Wall Street and having to meet these certain expectations all the time. You know, did you meet expectations? Did you didn't meet expectations? And your stock will fluctuate. And try to work within those guidelines becomes extremely difficult. And their whole you know, idea of monetizing is based on advertisers. So they're worried about should, you know, but we piss off advertisers. Yes, exactly. And VIs, exactly. Yeah, the eyes that are on the project. Yeah. So I think that, you know, and Elon has obviously commented on this uh, many times, especially recently in his TED Talk. If you haven't seen it, it's very interesting. There's some elements in there that are very marketing, in my opinion. But he did mention that one of his, you know, focus will be to remove all these bots. And if someone can do it, it's definitely Elon, you know, with the world class level of engineering that he has in the Tesla team that works on AI and things like that. I'm pretty sure that overnight he could get that fixed and out of the way. And that will have an effect not only on crypto, but, you know, a lot on, you know, on, on bullying or, um, Political discourse, conspiracy theory, you know, um, you know, fight against truth, that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. A lot of those things that have traction are not necessarily the traction is not actually real. And also like shadow banning and all those sorts of things, you know, these are all like, you know, the cancel culture and we're just going to, you know, shut you down because we don't like what you're saying and, and things like that. So that's definitely not you know, the, the whole idea of, of free, free speech. But I think it'll have a really, really good impact on uh, the crypto at large when they call it crypto Twitter or whatever. Yeah. Do you think, though, that going into like the actual crypto space, let's say a token, it might be a meme token, it might not be, it might be a utility token. It's also very difficult to decipher which is which. And it, just like the same thing with free speech, is that considered free speech? I mean, that's like if I we, the idea of free speech is that the people are going to say stuff that you disagree with, but you still give them a platform to do so. They'd be able to have, you know, and basically Twitter's become, you know, the town square of the 21st century. The difference, though, is that in something like with cryptocurrency, or not, I guess I not necessarily the difference is, is, is finance and money's involved. But where the, the, the differences stop there is because at the same time with, with any asset or digital asset, any token, who is the authority to say whether this is legitimate or not? Who is the person to do so without, you know, with government regulation? I mean, that, that shouldn't be Elon or Twitter's job, should it? Well, no, but, you know, it still remains that Twitter is, you know, it's an influential, very influential platform and every medium, whether it's a paper, you know, if, if, if the front page of the New York Times says that something is something, then it has influence on it. And legitimacy at that point. Yeah, indirectly. I mean, I wouldn't say that Twitter has legitimacy, 
But unfortunately, the way people perceive legitimacy is often based on the loudness of the voice, you know, in regards to. So if a lot of people talk about it, it suddenly it's what it's called, you know, you know, what influences people or, uh, you know, there's this thing where I think it's called the sheep factor where everybody wants to be like everyone else. And if someone's doing something, then you're like, well, I want to do that something as well. So it's it's like the herd mentality, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I could say. But we'll see what comes <laughs> out of it. Um, I think that broader speaking, I was listening to um, a podcast yesterday, This Way podcast, and they were going at length as to how he actually was able to come up with the cash. And I think it's going to be... Uh, Pretty interesting to see. It was not all his money, you know. He came up with a large portion of it, but, you know, he was the largest shareholder still, but he still had to have a lot of people help him out. The issue is that he had to come up with about $21 billion worth of cash, and he leveraged basically all a good a good portion of his Tesla stock to come up with that. And so we'll see what that means. You know, if if the markets fall too much, then you might get a margin call. <laughs> well, they might, they might, you know, what happens if they have to come for those stocks, you know, and who's gonna be uh, the majority holder and you know it's it's they could have a trickle of is he leaving is he leaving investors holding the bag? Yeah. I don't know, but it, it it'll definitely have a trickling effect. Hopefully everything's will 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 stay positive. Uh but um yeah. Well, Moving on, but before we do, there's an old, there's a, one of my favorite quotes that I love always hearing is that when we were younger, we were promised flying cars, and instead we got 128 characters. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> the good old Jetsons. I know, uh. right? <laughs> I'll, I'll just kind of move forward. The topic's kind of over. We do have some questions I do want to take from the community. We are running out of time. Really quickly, though, we do want to give you guys a little bit of a project update. We've had a very exciting week moving uh, that we just had previously when it comes to Ever Checkout. Next week, I think it's going to be even better. You're going to see the inclusion and implementation of more projects every day throughout the week. We want to be able to grow this thing to at least 100 products, being able to use it in a very short time. I think we're on track to meet that goal, especially some stuff that we have going on in the background. But Checkout is really just the first step in a broader um, ecosystem, which is Ember. Jason, do you want to kind of give some insight on that? And a lot of people too as well, they want to know how it's affecting the token and what, what, what do we have when it comes to utilize it to the utility and how the token's going to work with, through all of these um, parts of the ecosystem. Yeah, you do hit sort of a, you know an important topic is, I mean, we're so focused on creating world-class utility for this token and this business so that we're not reliant on market behavior and, and, and things like that. But we are, you know, obviously relentlessly working on creating synergies between product services and the Ember token. And I think that's always going to be part of what we do um, because we truly believe in the decentralized ownership of um, the way we see business in the future and also capitalizing on this um, decentralized approach and everything that has to do with it. But I think what's also important to uh, emphasize on is, you know, checkout is just one moving part of a broader, uh, like you mentioned, you know, ecosystem. And, you know, sometimes I like to use some narratives uh, or at least uh, I, I try to paint the picture and, 
you know, our vision for uh, Ember Org and everything that we're doing with our product and service vision has to do with ideation to launch, you know. And when you think about this, we started sort of dividing the journey in a few sort of different categories or at least families of products that could potentially support these different stages. And we've mentioned, you know, multiple times, you know, this discovery and the discovery of being able to find, you know, the next gem or the next world-changing crypto project. That's everything that comes, you know, at the beginning. And then you have things uh, that we could categorize as pre-launch that you'll find in there, you know, the products and services that will empower any token to do pre-sales. We've done it ourselves. You know, we know it's battle-tested, um, but, you know, how can we use, and we've promised it from the beginning, you know, that we were going to sort of repurpose what we use and we had tremendous success. Launch. Yeah, exactly, for our launch. So all of these elements there, we're packaging them up to create, you know, a unique sort of uh, set of tools that will enable any project on any chain to launch their ideas or, um, you know, whatever they want to launch. And then after that, you have the launch itself. So how do you take your project into secondary market? You know, this there's a lot of issues as to how you can do it. We've faced a few of them and, you know, we've conceptualized how we can mitigate for those and help others have a, 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 a more controlled and seamless experience going from pre-sale to secondary market. And then once you're in secondary market, which we would qualify as post-launch, you know, how do you empower those token-powered business to operate? And checkout is part of post-launch. We've designed and built post, you know, this uh, embeddable widget that will come in multiple shapes. Uh, right now, it's a widget, but you'll have a full-page checkout. You'll have also a modal version of it, and everything that supports it in the in 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 the background. So you'll have a dashboard. And a lot of people have been asking too, as well, is that I know that's part of right now the closed beta. I see a lot of questions here from the community too, as well. I don't mean to interrupt you, Jay, because I know we're running a little low on time here. About the idea of when people can start to see what checkout will actually really look like as a finished product. Are they going to get a sneak peek of that beforehand? Do you have any kind of tidbits they can kind of let them know of what we're showing them? Possibly. I mean, we're not going to show anything today because it's not not the platform for that right now. And not on our agenda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the good news is that we're rapidly approaching our public beta. There's a few key elements that are missing and that we're building. And we're finalizing those last few TD bits. And it's, you know, it's coming in the next couple of weeks. You know, it's not months. It's a couple of weeks. And from there, we'll be able to think about all these other, because the demand is, is, pretty important on everything that has to do with pre-launch and launch. You know, we've we've been talking about this for a long time and we're quite focused, you know, on what's next, you know, because checkout is very stable, it's very much scalable and we feel that once it's out, you know, of the gate, we already need to start thinking about what's next. 
well, that was the next part is people are dying to know is how is this token going to integrate with utility? Because people really want to see the value of what the token will be in the future. Well, the utility, I mean, through checkout, there's there's obviously the um, the buyback. buyback. Mm-hmm. So that will play an important role into stabilizing and growing, you know, the liquidity pool and the market around the token. But I feel that where the Ember token will have the most utility is in the ecosystem. And we've talked about this again, but I think it's worth reiterating is we have great, great enthusiasm for how the Ember token will have utility in what we could call the discovery to pre-launch and launch phases of Ember Org. And this is where, you know, I can't really dig too much into how this will materialize and and become a reality, but it's a central part of everything that will happen. Any of the decision-making that we're doing, that's that's obviously something that's that's on our mind, number one, is how do we take care of our investors? Yeah, absolutely. But there's also, I mean, there's the reward part of it. Everybody's probably been staking, and the more we move forward, I mean... The, the more we will introduce, you know, staking. Because we have more features coming on that front as well. Yeah. And there's also something that we've mentioned before, which is, you know, making the Ember token at some level be part of the governance of everything that has to do with the give back. So if people want to get involved in decision making and go beyond just being a, a, a holder or using the, the Ember token as a form of utility in the ecosystem from discovery to pre-launch and to launch, then there's that also that that is uh, available to you. So I feel we're, you know, we're addressing all the areas where, you know, people could or would want the token to have utility meeting and potential. We'll probably do a full episode in the next couple of weeks around once we reveal some of these elements, but I'm I'm truly excited, you know, about where where we're taking this and it's going to be next level. Yeah, well, not necessarily next level, but well, when it comes to ease of use and accessibility for some of the things that we're going to be offering, I, I think it's a next level in that department because of the hurdle of difficulty and the learning curve to be able to get to that point is so difficult now that what we're going to be offering is, is really going to be next level when it comes to introducing new people to the space. Yeah, no, I mean, we're we're 100% focused on making the space more accessible, so we need to make it fun at some point. So there's some elements of how can we make the Ember token fun in terms of utility. So you can connect the dots when I'm saying this, you know, what it could potentially mean, but there's, there's a lot of thought being put into giving utility to the Ember token. Excellent. And and just to wrap this up real quick, I, that kind of answers some of the questions that I'm seeing here. One of the ones I like to address though, the both of us to kind of put our two, our two cents in, a couple of people asking is how satisfied are you guys regarding the checkout beta? How's it been going? And you know, have you guys had seen any suggestions or objections when it comes to projects that are already using checkout? And for those of us, for you and I that are kind of on the front lines of that, talking to people, I would say that you know there's a huge. We're very satisfied with how satisfied projects are once they the relationship that we're able to build with a project once. 
because you know I don't want to get too much of what our process is and who's you know what their closed beta. But when a project does implement the relationship and bond that we that we build with them instantaneously, because they are so excited to refer us to talk about building partnerships, to want to be more involved in what we're doing and, and letting us know like, oh, these are the people we also know that are run, running the actual blockchain of the DEX itself. We can make these introductions. It's such a great thing. And we've seen this happen with Wire. We've seen this happen with, with Hacken and the stuff that we're doing. I'm overly satisfied, Jason. I just want to know if you want to put your two cents in there as well. Well, yeah. I mean, if we look at a more of a sort of metrics-driven analysis yeah, we, we're over the moon in regards to, you know, how well things are going, how when people start interacting with the actual widget, how many transactions convert. And also stability. Yeah, all, all these things that we need to look into, you know, because we feel that UX, UI is, is an important thing and we're working extremely hard on, on releasing a new look and feel based on feedback and comments you know, the experience of buying a token is never going to be the same once, you know, we enter production. And when we start presenting this new flow based on comments and feedback, and especially with Wire with the on-ramp, which, you know, this is something that is coming, you know, in the next uh, couple of weeks as well. And I feel, you know, that like you're mentioning, yes, there's the partner level, but, you know, the projects themselves once they 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 start seeing the level of enthusiasm from them, I mean, what's the music from their community? I think this is where it it matters the most, and this is where we want to have the most or the biggest impact. You know, we want people to enjoy the process of buying a a token. Which, I mean, between you and I, Rob, and I'm pretty sure that the community out there listening to us. I can't say that, you know, I've particularly loved buying, <laughs> you know, a token on a DEX. You know, it's not like something I get out of and I say, wow, that was fun, you know. <laughs> but a lot of people have been commenting on and, and sharing their thoughts and feedback around buying a token using Ember Checkout on one of these projects. And especially when you think about emerging chains where the experience is way below, you know, expectations. This is where I feel we have the biggest impact. And, you know, we want to spread this impact to all the 20 plus different chains that we're compatible with and empower and make buying their assets much, much easier, much faster and much more enjoyable. Ultimately, that's the end goal. That's exactly what I was going to say, too, is that the idea of making it very accessible to get people's feet in the door, you know, virtually, obviously, but they get their feet in the door. And then once they're here to make the process and the stuff that you're doing so enjoyable, it's a reason to stay. You know, there's, you know, in customer retention, you know, whether that's someone on, you know, B2B or B2C, we, what, one of the best ways to do is to make it enjoyable and make it fun, especially in a space that's, I think, sometimes is, is lacking a bit of that. Yeah, it's definitely missing, but that's fine. You know, that's why we're here. Gives us a niche. well listen jason i've really enjoyed this conversation i love these talks that we have on these weeks it's been really great to see you again you for all of you that are listening online or you can always catch us at any place you can catch any of your podcast and you can catch us live as well that's 2 p.m easterns on thursdays normally (laughs) and we hope to catch you guys next time jason's been a real pleasure see you later buddy thanks everyone see you guys next week take it easy guys 
Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Today at Ember. If you like the show, please rate and review. You can find us on all of the major podcasting platforms. You can also tune in to our live stream on YouTube and subscribe to our channel. Thanks again for listening and see you on the next episode.